The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Which of the years, praying for other churches and uh, how we can support our sister churches. And this morning, uh, this church is very near and dear to our own congregation because about 22, 23 years ago, our church had dwindled down uh, to a group of faithful saints uh, that didn't number many, but were faithful and desired for Tower View to continue on. And so North, First Baptist North Kansas City, FBCNKC, say that five times fast, uh, came and, and gave us some uh, personnel. And I think the remaining personnel we have, uh, if you would just raise your hand, Sonia and, and, and Nelson Nisley, Andy Nisley was part of that as well, uh, Jack and Donna Kimbrell way in the back back there. And uh, I, does that cover everybody? I think it's left. There were a number of families that came from First Baptist North Kansas City to be among us, to help strengthen the church. And some of them stayed. Some of them moved on at various times. But uh, we owe a, a debt of gratitude in Lord's work to FBC and KC. Uh, this last week, I, I found out as we were going to contact the pastor of the church that they are now pastorless. So uh, after a long stint with one pastor and one uh, about three, two or three years last uh, since COVID time, uh, they're now pastorless. And Amy and I were talking before, it seems like a lot of the churches we prayed for have been without pastors, haven't they? And so this morning, we're going to pray for them. And uh, I've not heard any other word. We're just going to pray in general. And uh, I just thank the Lord for the grace to stay in a position for a long time. It's not about us, but thank you for the strength to stay here, to be st- stable here at times, because it's so topsy-turvy. And so thank God for endurance. And And so we pray that as God moves on one pastor, that God would bring them the pastor they need. Would you join me in prayer this morning? It's good to have you. Uh, I feel tired from yesterday with our men's intensive and other things, and uh, uh, maybe you are. Uh, Just time change weekend hasn't kicked in, but by God's grace, we will get through, won't we? But let's pray together. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Let's pray for our sister church as we do. Father, as we come to you, we thank you for the fact that the body of Christ is as varied and as geographically diverse and cultural diverse as, as, as it will be in heaven. And Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says that every tribe, nation, and tongue is represented uh, under the throne, worshiping, uh, as it were, in the days ahead and even now uh, to, to announce that you are holy, holy, holy. So, Father, as we come to you, we acknowledge that every church has a different path in your providence. And right now, for our sister church in North Kansas City, First Baptist, that, that they are pastorless. Father, that church has been there for many, many years, and we pray that as they reach an area that is, that is growing and changing in many ways, that you would continue to use them to reach out with the clear gospel of Christ, to call people to repentance, to love them, to serve them, but, but to, 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 to plant the flag and say, as we learned in Sunday school, Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, give them wisdom in their decisions ahead about who to hire, what uh, maybe a personnel team to form, whatever it is. But in the midst, Lord, guard their unity, guard their doctrine, guard their uh, outreach, just guard their love ultimately for you. And Father, how grateful we are that so many years ago, uh, uh, Pastor Dave and others came from that church to be a part of our church to help us be in the place we are today. We are so grateful. As we learned last week, to remember our leaders. Father, we are grateful for those who led the way and how that has impacted us. Father, I pray for our own church. I would pray as we have been praying for many churches the last several weeks without pastors.
pastors, that, Father, you would help us to be a, a great support in prayer during these times, Father, and that if there's any other way that we could help, Lord, lead us in that way. But thank you for the faithfulness of the people here at Tower View, all by your grace, to serve you, to love you, and to know more of you. Father, we thank you. We praise you that Jesus came back from the dead, and we celebrate that every day. We ask these things today in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I would invite you to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, I think you know that uh, if you've been visiting or if you've been with us, we've been in this book called Hebrews. You've got it imprinted on your soul, and uh, you may be asking, how long are we going to preach? And I don't know. We'll keep going until the chapters end, but we really have scheduled two more weeks, this week plus two, through Palm Sunday, traditionally called, and then we will be done with the book of Hebrews. And someone asks, you know, why didn't you want to preach to an Old Testament book next? Well, we have covered through this book, haven't we, a lot of the Old Testament in just going through the chapters. We feel like we've gotten a, a crash course in Old Testament as we've applied that, that Jesus is greater than all. And today, Jesus is greater than self-centered worship, self-centered worship. You know, many years ago, uh, well, not even many years, even today, there are people that would call the worship wars. Maybe you've heard that terminology before. The worship war started, as it were, some years ago when, are we going to put songs on a, um, uh, uh, what is that thing called, Nelson? I just lost it. Uh, uh, a what? An overhead, yes, where you, you had words up on a screen, and everyone who used to sing out of a hymnal got sweaty palms, and then we switched over to one of these things, a projector, wherever it's at up here, and people got nervous, and hymn books went away, and there was this big debate. Do we sing old hymns? Do we sing new hymns? Do we sing new songs and no songs that are old? Do we do a little bit of both? And I'm grateful at our church we have found unity in doing a little bit of both, called a mixed service or a mixed blessing. But today, Al Mohler put it this way several years ago. Today, he says, and this is what he, it'll be on the screen, his book, He Is Not Silent. Mohler says that the subject of worship is now the most controversial issue in the local church. Isn't that sad? It's not about who we're singing to or what we're singing about. It's how we're singing that people are fighting about. Benjamin Keith, many of you know that name. He's long since been dead. But in the 1600s, he was in a pastor of a particular Baptist church in London. And it took 20 years, 20 years for them to be convinced to sing anything other than the book of Psalms was okay. Did you hear that? They were so focused on psalms, and there are many denominations. That's all they sing. I have a good friend of mine, Brian Peters. He's preached in this pulpit, Presbyterian Brian. All he sings is psalms. But Benjamin Keith said, we can sing all the songs. And that uh, guess what that church did? Just like that. Worship wars. The bottom line is, if you Google worship wars and see how hot this topic is, you'll know it's always been around. Too dangerous for us. First is that we see worship as just something you do right here on a Sunday morning. Worship is not just something that we do, and if there's a good worship set, you've really worshipped, or, or if there's good preaching, you've really worshipped. That's one danger. The other danger that comes to worship, especially in America, is worship is what I get out of it. In other words, they ask in the car, what did you get out of worship today? How were you fed? What did it do for you? Revelation 7, 9, and 10, and I prayed about this in the prayer, it says and reminds us that Paul says that, or the author, John, says this. He says, After I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from every tribe and people and language, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with a palm branch, and crying out, verse 10, with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to the God who sits on our throne 
on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, worship should not be about whether it's traditional or hymned or a blended service. Worship really ultimately is about what Jesus Christ came to do and who God is. The cross is at the very heart of the Old Testament and New Testament as it prescribes to worship. In Genesis, Jesus was the seed of the woman who came to destroy sin and Satan. In Exodus and Leviticus, he was symbolized, as we've seen in Hebrews, through the sacrificial system. In Isaiah and worship, Jesus is the suffering servant who died. In Zechariah, he's the pierced one who opened up the fountain of floodgates. And now in the New Testament, he came at the proper time to give himself a life and a ransom for us. So church, at our church, may we never fight over whether hymns or songs or psalms, P-S-A-L-M-S, are more important than the one we are singing to. Amen? Because that is something that divides churches. So how does the cross bring us closer to worship? How does it get rid of the worship wars? And is there a way that God will not accept our worship? We'll look at those questions today. The big idea today, you'll see it in your your bulletin, which is just a summary sermon. Summary of the sermon is that when we miss the depths of the gospel, we hamper our worship. When we miss the depths of the gospel, we hamper our worship. And this is why we need to look at these two verses. Because, friend, let me tell you today, worship is not just something you do on a Sunday morning. It is truly a lifestyle. That's why, as we'll read in just a minute, that worship is continually happening. It's a 24-365 thing. And worship is primarily not about getting I've had many people here who visited over the years saying, I just did not get anything out of the worship service today. I'm going to another church where I can get something. You know what? Eventually that church is going to dry up for you too. But you know who never dries up for you? The Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is not about getting. It's about giving and always coming to give to the Lord a worship due and deserving of his name. And it's all based upon the cross. So this morning from Hebrews 13.10, Uh, through 16, we will see two reasons why we must get the cross to truly understand worship this morning. If you're able to stand this morning, will you join me in standing as we read God's word? And as Brian said, well, if you're not able to stand, that is okay. It's more about the posture of your heart than it is the physicalness of your legs or uh, of your frame. But I want to remind you where we have been, the first 12 chapters, the writer of Hebrews, whomever he was, gave us why Jesus is greater than And now he's writing to them with some very practical applications about what it is to live out that Jesus is greater than everything. And last week he talked about remembering leaders, considering their outcome, that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the verses preceding that, he told you that God is enough for you. In your marriage, in your sexuality, in your money, in your life, be content with what you have. And now he picks it up in verse 10. Let's read it together. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is bought, with, bought rather into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So, verse 12, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, that is through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so this morning, I want you to see once again, and as we get our hearts geared towards the Lord's Supper, 
I want you to see once again that the cross is foundational and the cross is fruitful. When you get the cross, your worship changes. When a church gets what Christ came to do, everything changes about worship. It's not about the show. It's not about rocking it out. It's not about fog machines. It's not even about the greatest hymn singer in a traditional country church that can bellow out better than any country singer could sing a hymn. It is about Christ and Christ exalted. That's what it's always about. Even if you're off key, even if no one wants to sit around you because you sing that bad, it's about Christ and it's about the heart of Christ and the understanding of the cross as the foundation and the fruitfulness. We pray with me this morning as we go before our Lord. Lord, thank you so much for the fact that we can even worship you. How many people sing great songs, Lord, to you that have no idea about the true meaning of the words they are singing. But Father, for all of us, whether we can sing professionally or somewhat or really not at all, who cares what the sound of our voice is? May our hearts be overflowing with the fact that Jesus died and even died for me. Father, our church knows these truths well, but as you often have in this book, remind us, for easily we forget who we are in Christ, what he has done for us, and what we have promised for us in that city that is lasting forever, and whose foundations is the builder and architect only by your hand, God himself. We pray in Jesus' name today, and God's people said, amen. You may be seated, guys. Thanks. Thank you. This is why Brian is very helpful in all that he does. He, he, fixes, he fixes collars and he fixes microphones. First, I want you to see why, do, why getting the cross is, found, is, is, is evoking to your worship or helps your worship. It's because the cross is foundational. The cross is foundational. You see first there in verse 10, the first part is the reality of the cross. The reality of the cross. He says here, we have an altar. This altar could mean several things. Does it literally mean that there's an altar? First, what is an altar? An altar is something that you put a sacrifice on. And in the Old Testament, it was the biggest piece of furniture that they had in the Holy of Holies. In fact, the altar was a place that everything else was sat on. It was wood, as was given to Moses, and it was overlaid with brass so it could withstand the fire that was required to keep the sacrifices going and going and going. And the high priest officiated on the great day of atonement once a year, this altar and upon it what it is. So he says we have an altar. Is he talking about here, the writer of Hebrews, the temple altar that, that was in the great temple? No, I don't think so. Uh, was he talking about a heavenly altar like Revelation 6 says, that where the martyrs in Revelation 6 and 7 sing around? No, it doesn't seem to be what he's saying. That's an imposition on the text. Is he talking about a communion table? Well, like the Baptists say, do this in remembrance of me. It doesn't seem to be what he's saying. The altar here seems to be, and, and in the context seems to best suggest, that it's a figurative altar. That is, it's a place of sacrifice. This altar we have, you might say, is Christ himself. And through all the Old Testament sacrifices and meals and peace offerings and all that came to bear, the cross was an altar upon which the perfect sacrifice was made for imperfect sinners. And the reality of the cross is, is we often vastly underestimate how much Jesus loves us. That from all time, for the foundation of the world and all that he came to do, we have now a sacrifice for our sins. We have an altar. It is not an altar on which animals are sacrificed, but the altar figuratively that he's pointing to and physically that was a reality was that Christ actually died. 
There are some churches and denominations that actually say Jesus himself did not die upon the cross. That someone else was inserted in his place. Friend, that is, could not be far, further from the truth. Christ himself died. Galatians 3, 1 says, Who bewitched you, O Galatians? Jesus Christ was clearly displayed as dying upon a cross. Galatians 3, 1. The reality of the cross is, is that Jesus loves you so much that he gave himself as a sacrifice for you. You know that well. I know that well. But you have to remember, as he tells them these truths, Luther once said and was asked, why do I tell you the gospel all the time? And Martin Luther responded, because you forget the gospel all the time. And so he tells them that this is an altar. It's a reality. The reality of the cross is someone had to die, and that name, uh, the one who which is died, is Jesus Christ himself. In fact, if you go back to chapter 10, verse 10, quickly, it says, as a way of reminder, the writer says, and by this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There is a reality of the cross once for all. There is also a restriction of the cross. Look at the end of verse 10. He says there's a restriction of the cross. He says, from which these, those who serve the tent, or perhaps your translation says tabernacle, have no right to eat. What's he talking about? Is, is he saying that these Christians do not have a right uh, to eat or, or to partake of Christ? Well, what, what, for, from which? What, for, from the altar? Who is he referring to here? He's referring to the Jews. These Jews who are holding on to the Old Testament in one hand and trying to hold on to Jesus in the other, they are not able to partake of what he is offering because they don't want to go in Christ alone. You remember when you were saved at one time, you held on, as it were at times, to something of the world because you weren't ready to go in, all in for Christ, put everything into the middle. And so for what he's saying is they are those who would eat off the altar. Priests of those days, you may remember, would not only burn the sacrifice, but part of their offering or, or the gift from the offering was the food itself. They could eat the precious food that was sacrificed. And he says they have no right to eat. What he's saying is anyone who approaches the cross and does not come through Jesus Christ alone has no claim in what it means to be a Christian. That's why as way of reminder on your notes, by grace alone, can you say it with me? Through faith alone, because of Christ alone. John 6, 35, and men, yesterday I prepared this well before I knew what we were talking about. John 6, 35 was the opening verses we studied for seven hours yesterday. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger and will never thirst. There's a satisfaction of the soul. One bite, if you will, of Christ, one belief in him, one holding on to him, and you will live forever. And John 6.53, Jesus went on to say, you eat, of my, you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God, you will be saved. We are not cannibals, but this is why we appropriate Christ by faith. We receive Christ by faith because he alone saves. It is so freeing, isn't it, to know that you were not saved by anything you did, but you were saved by Christ alone. And Christian, it ought to make you sick, maybe to your stomach, maybe spiritually even more, when someone tells you that I have Jesus, but I have to do all these other things. Because the moment you know Jesus, you know he's enough. And he died for you once and for all. There's a restriction on who can come, only those who've embraced the reality of the cross that Jesus is enough. But notice verses 11 to 12, there's also the reproach of the cross, the reproach of the cross. 
He says in verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place, into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people of God through his own blood. There's a reality of the cross. You must embrace Christ. There's a restriction. You can only go through him. But now he says you must bear the reproach of the cross. He says this is done outside the camp. What is that saying? Well, outside the camp was a place you don't want to be. We live on the side of liberty that if you go about 10 minutes down the road, they have these big hills, and some of them are very pretty, but some of them you realize there's other things going on within them. And depending on the day, especially when the south wind blows, you can really smell what's going on in them. It's called the 291 dump, if you all know where that's at. It's where all the trash heaps in Kansas City proper and around go. And man, they've put those, those hills up high and they've built them high. But every now and then in the distance, you can see a bulldozer going up on a heap of trash. And when the wind blows again, it just stinks outside the camp. Outside the camp is referring to something very similar. Outside the camp was where all the animal sacrifices were in those days. They were where the dead bodies would stack up like cords of wood. They were where... Just to be honest with you, they were where your bucket would go and you'd dump your refuse, if you want to use that terminology as well. Lepers lived outside the camp. It was not a place you wanted to be. But he says here in verse 12 that Jesus also suffered outside the camp. Jesus was not a pretty boy savior. Jesus would never have made Life magazine or the, uh, uh, the, 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 the must, most muscular man of the world. In fact, Isaiah 53 and Nelson reminds us of this often. Jesus came, and, and there was nothing great about him appearance-wise. He looked pretty ugly, probably, actually. He had nothing on him by which people looked. He suffered because he took our sin. And sin is a stench in the nostrils of God. Sin is not cute. Sin is not cuddly. And as Jesus died, he didn't die in a palace or a perm food shop, or he didn't die with those samples you can get around at Macy's where they spray you a million times and you smell like five different things. He didn't have that. As he bore our sins by the pre-plan of God, he went outside the camp and so vile was the place that he died and so vile was the sin upon him. The father who was holy turned his back on his son, and it was too loathsome and foul to have fellowship with his son as the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And so he says, therefore, the gate. He says, therefore, in verse 12, Jesus suffered outside the camp. Why did he suffer? He suffered so he would sanctify you. He suffered so he would make you holy. He suffered so that you would be able to have the power of Christ, your defiled soul, with all the refuse of sin and all the the, the nastiness of sin that is an offense to a holy God, was done once and for all. And Jesus didn't mail it in. Jesus didn't do it by proxy. Jesus didn't sign his mail-in ballot and go on vacation. He did it himself. But notice what he says. He did this through his own blood. He did it outside the camp through his own blood. And there's a reproach that comes. If you believe Jesus died for you in this way, the world is going to look at you differently. The world is going to say, you believe that nasty, gross, bloody message of the cross? You believe in divine child abuse, Christian? You believe that the father abused the son to the point of death? You really believe that? And if you're a Christian, you will say what? Yes. 
And there's a reproach that comes with that. The word reproach, what does that mean? Well, to put it in very silly basketball terms for a moment, if you're an MU or KU fan, you're bearing the reproach of losing to really bad teams last night. Especially Missouri losing to a 15-seed Ivy League snotty-nosed school named Princeton. You're bearing that reproach. And KU fans, you always bear the reproach when you lose. I don't need to spell that out for you. That's silly reproach. You bear the shame of it all. But Christ bore a reproach that was eternal. And he bore a reproach that said that he is now so vile with our sin that even the Father had to turn away from him. Amy, if you'll put this up on the screen, please. Jesus reminds us in the gospel several times that if we are unwilling to bear his reproach in this age, that we're unworthy to bear his glory in the next. That is, if we are unwilling to stand up for Christ now, if we're unwilling to be named with those who are Christians now, and, and all the message that is offensive to the world in the cross, then we will be unable to worship him there in heaven someday. So often, as we lead people to Christ, we forget to tell them that there is a cross to carry when you come to Jesus. Yes, there's forgiveness of sin. Yes, verse 5, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, verse 8 of Romans or, or Hebrews 13, 8, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But when you become a Christian, there is a responsibility. There is a target on your back spiritually and maybe even physically as well. Because to be a Christian comes at a high cost, first of the death of Christ, but the high calling that comes by honoring him through your body because he's given his life for you. Christian, are you unwilling to bear the reproach of Christ, the shame of Christ, the offensiveness of the message? Be careful. You may be unworthy to bear his glory in the next if you truly haven't embraced what it is to suffer for Christ. Notice verse 13. There's a reality of the cross. It has to be through Christ. There is a, a, a reproach that comes. We have to bear the shame. There's also a restriction. Again, it's only through Jesus but there's also a reception of Christ. Look at verse 13. There's a reception of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, therefore. And we always ask, when a word is therefore, what it is what? Therefore. Because it's for. Through him, or excuse me, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. You say, Darren, that's kind of the same thing. Yes, it kind of is. But what he's saying now is not only to bear it, but as you'll see on the notes on the screen, we must also die to self before we can live for Christ. We must also die to self before we can live for Christ. He is telling them, yes, your Savior did this, but now you yourself must come to the place and the point that you're willing to accept it. Let us go to him outside the camp. We can't stay in our old life. You remember the Israelites. What did they always say? They grumbled. <laughs> They didn't like the food. They didn't like the leader. They didn't like the church they were in. They didn't like the nature sanctuary they had to live in. Whatever they could bring, the people of Israel always grumbled, didn't they? And he reminds them here, just as he reminded them many times before in the scriptures God did. Remember the Israelites would say, well, if we were just in Egypt, life would be so much better. We'd have food to eat. We'd have things to do. We could get away with all these things. But God told them, you will never go back to Egypt if you're my people. My people are going this way. Are you here to follow? And what he is telling them is you are going to have to die to self. You yourself must choose to identify yourself with Christ. You must receive it, and you must be receptive to it. You have to follow in his footsteps. There's no cheap grace. There's no cushy conversion. There is a rejected and reviled redeemer who tells all his followers, follow me. 
it is worth it. It is worth your life. I mean, have you really counted the cost of being his follower? Isn't it interesting? He's been doing this for 13 chapters, yet he keeps beating that drum. Have you accepted it? And going outside the camp means you're now marked as a follower of Christ. You know, back in the Jewish Holocaust days, they made the Jewish people wear the Star of David, didn't they? They'd pin it on the front. Sometimes they'd have it on the arm. It depended on the place and the time. It was very easily identifiable. And dare I say that there were Jews of those days who were more willing to stand for a dead religion than there are Christians who are willing to identify themselves with Jesus Christ because they don't want to bear the shame of being a follower of Christ. And some of them went to their death. Yet there are many Christians who are not willing to say, Jesus, I'm willing to give you my all. Count the cost. Finally, he says here, the cross is foundational because there is a reward. So when you do this, so, so, so what is the end game, Jesus? Well, look at verse 14. He says the, the reward of the cross. He tells you what it is. The reward of the cross, the pains of the cross, the pain of suffering, the pain of receiving him and, and, and embracing him, the pain of all the reproach that you face far outweighs the pains that come with it. Look at verse 14. He says, for here we have no lasting city. In other words, you're never going to find peace in this world, but we seek the city that is to come. That should hearken you back, shouldn't it, to Hebrews chapter 11, when all these people of faith were living not for this world, but for the world to come. Uh, Brother Willie, I believe you said one of your family members actually had a sermon preached on this passage uh, many years ago, as you found in your genealogy. It's a great reminder. Your home is not here. Stop building things for here. Church, can I apply this to us corporately? We have a design team right now behind the scenes. We made one of our goals to spruce up this place. We're grateful for the location we have, but just to upgrade it, get it up, to make it look, paint a few walls, whatever we got to do. Our design team has a weird balance. They want to honor that, that gift to, to keep what God has, but also realize that we're, this is just, we're passing through. How do you do that? How do you honor God in those things? Well, friends, I want to tell you that no matter what you choose in this life, God has given you good things. He's giving you family. He's giving you friends. He's giving you good food. The guys yesterday definitely got good food. I think every hour, uh, Brother Dave, I don't know where you are, but I think every hour we had another food thing, and we left happy and hung not hungry. But I will tell you, God has given you many good things. But this world, you live for this world through Christ's lens, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. But ultimately, everything here is just going to what? Pass away. Thank you, design team, for thinking of us, not only here, but encouraging us to how we can focus on things eternal through even things like planning. Have you considered what it is to live for Christ here? Are you so focused on this world, your bank account, your 401k, how many years you have to retirement? If my family just did this, those may not be sinful pursuits, but is your focus on what is to come and who is there when we get there more on what is happening right here? It's often been said that there are so many heavenly-minded people, there are no earthly good. I would argue we don't have enough heavenly-mindedness. Thank you, Brian, for reading Colossians 3. May we set our minds on things above. The word of the cross is this. Jesus has built a future for us that we could never ever build for ourselves. If you were in Sunday school this morning or small group, you know we went over that great passage in John 14. And everyone loves the King James Version when it comes to John 14 because in my house are many 
mansions, and all the other translations are many rooms or dwelling places. If you're, if you're not a King James only guy, uh, except during John 14, you love that verse because you want a mansion, man, not a room. Give me a mansion, right? That's how it goes. No matter what it looks like when we get there someday by faith in Christ, whatever he's built for us is greater than whatever we could build for ourselves, all because of what he's done. We are not seeking a city here. The cross reminds us that it is a foundational launching pad, if you will, to what Christ has prepared for us there. And someday we will be there, whether Christ comes or we die. May we be with the Lord. That is number one. Why is worship necessary? It's necessary because the cross is necessary and the cross is foundational. Second thing is this. The cross is, why is worship and getting the cross necessary? Because the cross is fruitful. Will you look at the last two verses with me? The cross is fruitful. First, you need to see verse 15. Notice those first two words. If you're an underliner, this is a great thing to underline. How do we get to that city? What does it say? What are those first two words? Through who? Him. Through Christ. Through him. If you're an underliner, put it there. This is the route of the cross. The cross is fruitful because there is now a way. Jesus said on the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And what he's saying is, don't miss this phrase. The only those who approach God can come through Jesus Christ. The hymn of verse 12 is Jesus of verse 15. And any worship that comes to God outside of Jesus is a dead religion. The altar here that he'll talk about in just a minute is the basis by which we can go through Christ. It's not through a priest. It's not through a ritual. It's not through religion or bloods of goats. It is through Christ alone. As way of reminders, you'll see on the screen, we shall never find the true God except and in and through Jesus Christ. John put it this way in 1 John 2.23, whoever denies the, son, denies the Son doesn't have the Father either, but whoever acknowledges the Son acknowledges the Father also. So when we come to Him, it is through Jesus and that sounds so easy. But remember the context of this book. For these early Jewish believers, that was a reminder to them that their whole world has changed. I recall, and you've prayed for recently, I'm not going to use names, even, even, even uh, pseudo names. But we prayed for someone far, far away with people that are serving our church far, far away. And that person came to know Jesus. Many of you know who I'm talking about. And that person came to know Jesus. And that person's life, who are people from here, who are over there, know, was completely transformed. She has had to count the cost of what it means to be a Christian. That affects her life. That affects her family. That affects, at the age she is, everyone underneath her, through him. And in those conversations, it wasn't through Krishna. It wasn't through this God or that God. It was through Christ. Has your life been changed through Christ? Have you found the route of the cross to be fruitful for you? And that is the, what he says. If you're not in Christ, you need to come to Christ because once and for all, he has saved us. Worship is necessary. It's foundational. There's a route. But notice also the range of the cross here, the range of the cross. Look at verse 15. He says, it's not only through him, but it's also, he says, let us continually, let us continually or your, your Bible may say continually, but it's a, it's a corporate language here. It's, it's y'all. It's every believer. We are made to be kingdoms of the priest of God. 
In, in, in days gone by, many of you old Baptists will remember that phrase, the priesthood of the believer. You may have heard that before. Martin Luther reinstated that in the Reformation. What it means is, is not everyone's qualified to be a pastoral leader. We've talked about that in recent weeks. But every Christian is a priest, quote unquote, to do the work of God. Every one of you, if you're a Christian, have a necessary place in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ, to continue to serve him. And more so, you now have access to him. The range of the cross has broadened out who may worship God, where you may worship God, and how you may worship God. 1 Peter 2.2 reminds us that we are built up as a spiritual house to be a priesthood, to a royal priesthood. Revelation, you all are biting at the bit at this, ready to go, right? Revelation 1.6 says, Jeff read this last week, that the kingdom, we are a kingdom of priests to our God and our Father. And we are to perform the function of a priest, which is what? We are to offer a sacrifice. We are to continually offer up. And that sacrifice, one of the ways that we do that is through prayer. And, the, and we'll look at it in a minute is praise. But I want to share this quote from Jerry Bridges. There's a lot of authors that you could have in your, your library. Jerry Bridges is one of those who I think just recently passed away a few years ago, not many years ago. And he said this. He said, to depend on God is continually, to depend on God continually is to pray continually. How do you show the range of what Christ died for you? Is that you go through him for every part of your day. And how often do we need to do that? All the time. How often should you pray? Well, the Bible says to pray without ceasing, doesn't it? It says that this is a way that the range of the cross is found in fruitful understanding of worship before God. In the small things, like Peter, when he was sinking, he didn't say, Jesus, give me a powerboat. He's walking on the water. What did he say? Save me, help me. Or you could have a big prayer like Paul. Most of his writings are just prayers that come in. But can I encourage you? The way that you show that you understand that the cross is fruitful in your life is the way that you handle prayer in your life continually to offer it up, unceasing praise to God, yes, vocally by your lips, but also by the way your life is. Are you praying, seeking God through the day? And if we're continuing to offer up, what kind of people ought we to be? He says the range of the cross opens up the opportunity to seek him wherever you are. You could be in prison and pray. That may, seem, that may seem like your job at times is prison, right? You could be at home. You could be on the road. Lord, help me not to crash into this other car because I'm really getting some road rage right now. Whatever it is, you can pray at all times and continually and offer up to him the sacrifice that is his of praise. So what is that phrase? We'll close with this. The fruitfulness not only comes from the route, it's through him, the range, it's opened up. It's a continual offering no matter where you are, especially through prayer. But finally, there is a recognition of the cross. There is a recognition of the cross. Into verse 15, he says that, the, 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 that we continue to offer up a what? A sacrifice of praise. Now, if you were back in the 80s and 90s, there is a chorus that goes on with this. Let us bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. My home church, First Baptist Plattsburgh, we sang that every, uh, that was the opening song for like 50 years. I'm pretty sure it's ingrained in my head. But he says, let's bring a sacrifice of praise. There's a recognition of the cross. 
In the depth of your soul, every moment of every day is about offering praise to God. Because you understand what Jesus did for you, because you understand it's through him, there's an open range in your life to give it to him. There's a recognition now that in good times or bad, in prosperity or the valley, in the mountaintop, whether you're encouraged or discouraged, whether you're having a great day or it's the worst day you feel like in a while, we have something to offer to God in praise. What is praise? We say that word all the time, but what does it mean? Praise is simply declaring the greatness of God. God, you are great, even though my life right now doesn't feel great. God, you are awesome, even though right now everything in my life doesn't seem to be awesomely going my way. God, I brag on you, Lord, because you got this. You know, often the greatest thing that the the book of Corinthians says, if, if you're to boast, if you're to go whoop, whoop, like this in your life, is to boast in the Lord. If you have nothing else to say or do, boast in the Lord. You know, sometimes as runners, we get in trouble with this. Runners are independent. We're humble, right? We, we just go do our thing, kind of like cats. You know, they never pride themselves walking along. If you have a cat at home, they, they're always humble and gentle, right? <laughs> runners get in trouble for what they call the humble brag. Oh, yeah, guys, I just went out for a run. Yeah, and I, you know, I ran my fastest time ever. But, but it was really windy outside, and, you know, and, and I really crushed the course out there today. But it really wasn't that big a deal. You ever know somebody like that, the humble braggers? You know what? You don't have to humble brag God because you have so much to celebrate. Tell him how great he is. Praise him with the lips of your name. Tell him what he's done for you. Praise him for who he is. Bring the sacrifice of praise. Bring thanks to his name. You know, that, and, and how do you do that? Look at the end of verse 15. What does it tell you to do that with? It tells you to do that with the fruit of lips. The fruit of lips. No, you're not growing bananas and oranges and grapes off your lips. What he's saying is, do this in a way, especially through your lips, so that you can acknowledge his name. Amy, I think we have this slide up. Hosea 14, I know you can't see it. If you want to go there, great. Look it up later, fine. But write it down for sure. Hosea 14, 1 and 2. Let me read it to you. It says this. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, Take away all my iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of the lips, or the vows of our fruit of lips. The only other time that phrase in Hebrews 13, 15 is mentioned is right here in Hosea 14. And why is that important to you? Because to bring a fruit of lips, a sacrifice, a praise to God, what Hosea says is you must bring a repentant heart, you must bring a pure heart, you must bring a reverent heart, And you must come before God and say, I am a sinner still, even in Christ. Forgive me of my sins. Please accept my worship. How often do I, even as a pastor, rush into worship without taking time to do that privately? Even stepping outside for a minute. How often does our fellowship take away our heart in a good way from just simply sitting down and saying, Lord, prepare my heart? How much more time do we spend getting ready for church than we prepare ourselves to worship God at church or wherever we are during the day? The fruit of lips is confessing sin, acknowledging our sin. Look, if all you need to do is sing to God, then the Mormon Tabernacle Choir has the best worship known to man. If you have ever heard the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, they are beautiful in their voices. Go listen to it. But I'm here to tell you, 
they have nothing to offer to God in the praise of the sacrifice of their lips. Well, that's just mean, pastor. No. Based in the context of Hebrews, what are you bringing when you bring a sacrifice of praise on your lips? You're bringing the truth of the gospel of the cross, that foundational thing to bear. You are praising God that through him and by him and in him and to him and all the prepositions thrown at Jesus that you can worship God through Christ. Just because a high school choir sings a good ditty that makes you stamp your feet or just because your favorite gospel singer who cheats on their wife two or three times like every country song they sing on the side but belts out amazing grace, they can offer no more praise to God than Satan himself. Christian, you have an obligation, a privilege, and an opportunity. You know Jesus. You bring the only true worship that can ever come before his lips. Think about that for a second. I will close with this last little slide here. So what does that mean? For many people, worship is something to attend and be done with as quickly as possible so they can get on with life. But for Christians, and it's hard to see, I'll underline those for you. The first blank is worship. For Christians, worship, the first blank, is life. Second blank, worship, life. For Christians, worship is life. That's why he says, not only with your lips, but look at verse 16. Not only with your lips, but if you really are praising God and worshiping him because you understand the cross, you will not neglect to do good and share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The way you understand what Jesus has done for you changes how you see worship, but it changes how you serve, love, and care for your neighbor, especially those within the body of Christ. Today is one of our longer Sundays, admittedly. We're about ready to take the Lord's Supper. You will probably be out of here at 12.05 p.m. in 25 minutes. Okay. What I pray is we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, that you remember that because of the cross, that foundation, you now have a fruitfulness that comes because you get to worship Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I just want to encourage you. If you haven't heard it clearly enough, you are a sinner, but Jesus says to believe in him. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Will you pray with me this morning? Let's go before our Lord. Fathers, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, that as we remind ourselves that as the big idea is, when we miss the depths of the gospel or what Jesus did for us, we hamper our worship. So, Father, as this writer of Hebrews was telling these people so long ago, so we remind ourselves of, is that the cross of Christ is never a dull subject for those who are truly in Christ. Yes, Lord, your word teaches us, doesn't it? So many other things and, and things, ways to live, ways to talk, ways to pray, ways to give and not give, and so on and so forth. But the foundation of everything we do is that Jesus Christ died for my soul. So, Lord, as we seek to honor you through this last song and subsequently the Lord's Supper, may we do it to your honor and glory. And thank you, Lord, that you've forgiven all of our sins only and through Jesus Christ. We pray this today in his name, in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen.